Hello and welcome back to the Hooligan Report. We've had a bit of a break over the international break. Uh, and with me today, I just have the lovely Boyan. Hi, Sam. Hi, all. <laughs> so it's, it's going to be a nice intimate one-on-one, I think, today. Uh, so how have you found the international break? We'll start with that. I haven't really paid uh, a lot of attention outside of the updates on the board. International qualifiers aren't really my thing, to be honest. But um, it's nice to see Rooney break the record. I was going to ask he, you about that. Yeah, He's not England's greatest ever goal scorer. That's really between um, Jimmy Greaves and Gary Lineker. But he's been a fantastic player um, well, th- throughout his England career, and people bash him over the head about his uh, record in major tournaments. I think he scored five goals or six goals in major tournaments. But what people forget is that in every major tournament he's played in, outside of those Euros when he came onto the scene, um, he's gone in half fit. He's gone yeah. in injured. He had, he's kind of like um, Beckham, actually. He's, he, he broke his metatarsal. Um, twice before major tournaments and got injured during major tournaments. But, you know, you, you can't argue with 50 goals for your country. He's been a great servant for England. It's quite interesting because I think there was initially quite a bit of criticism about him taking the record off Charlton. Um, but when you look at the goal-scoring records side-by-side, side, uh, which I only did for the first time the other day, but they're actually quite similar. And in a lot of ways, Rooney comes off a lot better than Charlton. I mean... There's that perception that he's scored the bulk of his goals against your San Marinos and Andorras and that sort of thing. But, I mean, Bobby Charlton back in his day, he's playing against Wales and Scotland, Northern Ireland and stuff when they weren't flash hot sides and, and the USA and all that sort of thing. So um, I wouldn't say Rooney's underserving of the record at all, really. Well, it's interesting you talk about um, Charlton's record. So I'm not sure how many people will know this, but back in that time when Charlton was playing, they had this thing called the... Um, home nation championships. And I think it was every couple of years, basically, um, in between World Cups, I think. Um, And, yeah, so they all played each other. Now, it wasn't a lay-down reserve for England at that time because Scotland had a fantastic team during during that time. Um, People remember the... Well, not many probably listeners here will remember the Celtic Lions, which are the first British team to win the European Cup. You know, they, they were pretty much all... Scottish and with the heartbeat of the Scotland team. Wales had a couple of players. Northern Ireland had um, George Best, obviously. But uh, the main thing that Charlton has over Rooney, well, a couple of things. He was a attacking midfielder, not a centre forward. Um, and in addition to that, Bobby Charlton scored, I think it was four goals during the England's World Cup win in 1966. Yeah. But not just in the World Cup, but in the World Cup they won. Yeah. So, big stage, big game. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, Rooney's only scored one goal at the World Cup finals, I think, um, from memory. Um, so, that's probably going to count against him a little bit. Um, so, it'll be interesting to see if he can add to those. Um, if he goes to the next World Cup, would, would that be a possibility for him, or is it just beyond him? In terms of staying, staying on to the next World Cup, part of the the England setup, I suppose. Well, I mean, that's the the problem is, is that when you make these guys captain, you kind of dictate, or the now you the onus is on them, and and they're dictating the players actually dictating dictating terms. 
You know, so, I mean, it could be argued that David Beckham stayed on too long and he was captain. Yeah. So it be interesting to see um, how long he's, he stays on for. I mean, it's all about, it's all about form. And the only bloke that's actually uh, coming after him is Harry Kane, really. And they actually work well together playing for England. There's no one, I mean, but like the Berahino's not at that level. Ings, nowhere near that level. Charlie Austin, no. Berahino, no. Someone actually has to, and rightly, someone should have to push him out the door. Well, I mean, Jamie Vardy's waiting in the wings. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> it's, I mean, he's, I'll tell you what, he's a FIFA player, that bloke. Yeah. You know, in the last FIFA, where all you had to do was be quick and you just yeah. hit these guys' space and just run, put the accelerator on? That's what Jamie Vardy is. And then he'll go down in the, the box. Football. Not go down, oh, jeez. <laughs> The other thing with Rooney, too, is that he's played in a team, and despite the team sheet on paper, outside of when they um, under Sven, where they debatably should have beaten Brazil in that World Cup quarterfinal, they've been putrid, really putrid throughout that period, despite the names on the team sheet. So that you know should come into consideration, people thinking on Rooney. Well, speaking of um, United strikers, we might move on to chatting about the deadline day signings that um, happened in the early hours of uh, Wednesday morning last week. Um, and probably the biggest name was was a move to United in um, Marshall, who I think everyone, when they first heard of the transfer, kind of went, who? Um, so what can you tell us about your newest striker? Uh, Anthony, I think it's Martial or Martial. Martial. Or... Marshall. Yeah. Eminem, as I'm dubbing him. So he started off. Well, he started off his his career as a as a junior at the same club as um, Thierry Henry, and that's kind of feeds into those kind of comparison those comparisons with him. He got snapped up when he was young by Leon, and he holds the record for most youth youth goals of anyone in in France. He had, I think, it was uh, when he was. Uh, 17, I think it was 37 goals in 20 games. Um, he, he scored for the youth, youth team there, and then he, he got a move after he only played three or four games for Monaco, uh, for Leon, sorry. And um, Monaco paid five million euros for him. Now that's like pretty, pretty big money, particularly in France, where they haven't got a lot of money outside of PSG. Um, the other clubs don't have much cash, so that was <laughs> huge. And he's. Um, He's done pretty well at Monaco when he when he joined there and was playing. Berbatov was up front, so it was kind of a bit of a second fiddle impact sub kind of thing. Um, they play a four three three, which suits what Van Gaal wants wants to do. He, the other similarity people draw with Thierry Henry is that he starts centrally and he drifts drifts out wide to the wing on the um, left hand side, and then he yeah. cuts in. I mean, that's. I was a bit hesitant to label him a striker because he's not really an orthodox striker, is he? He prefers to play a bit, bit more out wide. So in a way, he's well, a bit, he's a bit complementary to Depay. Well, well, that was that was last season. So Berbatov, Berbatov's gone. He's gone to um, is it PAOK? Yeah, PAOK. I think it was. In um, in Greece. So at the start of this year, they they played him centrally. Right. Well, they played him as their as their main striker, and yes, he ro- he roams a lot, which is actually 
quite good because it's difficult as a defender to kind of track track those runs. And he and he played he's played well at the start of the season. He almost won um, in in France's only three Champions League spots. The team that comes third goes into the playoffs, similar to United, finishing fourth and to play the playoffs. They played against Valencia, um, and he almost got them over the line on his own. Um, as what 18, 19-year-old, barely 19-year-old kid, uh, here, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. I, I mean, I, admittedly, outside of watching him play against Arsenal in the Champions League, where he gave um, Bellerin and Mertesacker an absolute bath, I haven't seen anything else of him live outside of what's on you know the internet yeah. he but what i can tell you he is lightning quick he has very good close control he's a very good dribbler and he's quite composed when he's in front of goal however he's inconsistent he's not the greatest passer of the ball which i mean you can say about most 19 year olds to be honest it's not really a huge blight in his game at that stage i would think exactly and people saying they pay too much Look, the, the numbers, it's only £36 um, million pounds kind of up front. The rest of them are add-ons. If they'll pay the full, I think it's, uh, what, £58 million pounds if he wins the Ballon d'Or in the next four years. I'll be happy to pay that. Yeah, top goal scorer in the league, I think, was one of them and, and all those sorts of things. That, that kind of also... I mean, although you know that's kind of a little bit laughable, that kind of shows you how high, highly Monaco rated this kid. They really didn't want to sell him. United were only—I mean, they knocked back Monaco, knocked back everyone because United have been after him, PSG been after him, City, Chelsea, Barcelona after him. The only reason they let him go is because they didn't get that Champions League money because they lost to Valencia in that in that playoff, and that's the only reason they let him go. And they didn't let it go with, with, without a. Big, big fight, as you can tell by that, by that kind of fee. People are saying, yes, you know, it's eye-watering, it's, it's too much. People said the same thing about Wayne Rooney. People said the same thing about Rio Ferdinand. Same thing about a, a um, stand that no one, knew, no one knew. You know, so let's just not write this shit off just yet. The main thing is that he needs to be mentally strong enough to cope with that price tag. And that's, I don't think the ability and potential can be questioned. But no one really knows what it's like in terms of his persona. Can he handle it? Yeah, so I think he's he's expressed surprise himself at the the price tag and and the move and that sort of thing. So, um, in one sense, I feel like he is trying to keep quite a level head about it and sort of say that it's not you know it's not his responsibility for how much clubs are going to pay for him. He's just got to go out there and perform. But I do wonder a little bit whether the supporters um, and others will just sort of look at him with an expectation that he'll be able to perform straight from the offset. And if he isn't scoring goals, then they might turn on him. And, and that's the issue, is whether he can cope with that, that sort of pressure. So well, you know what, <laughs> what's, uh, what's amusing is that they were interviewing on, on, on um, deadline day, interviewing what uh, Thierry Henry, Dan Balagay and Ian Holloway. And also after that, Ray Parler. Ray Parler, never seen him play. Just completely just said it was a waste of money without seeing the play. Yeah. Um, Balladay said it's a, it's a lot of money, but the Valencia the Valencia coaches he had spoken to, including Phil Neville, said that this kid's the real deal. Um, Terry Henry said 
he has pace. If you don't, if you watch the video, he says he has pace about four times <laughs> in, a row, in a row without really providing more than that. So the English press can be pretty pretty brutal with Johnny Foreigner. So we'll, we'll see how how long they give him. The United fans will get behind him. United fans always get behind young kids, give them an opportunity. Don't mind that. He might, he might cop a bit from from elsewhere though. Fair enough. Um, we'll move on to some of the other clubs that had a bit of action on deadline day, and probably the the club that tried to get the most deals over the line was West Ham, um, who managed to sign Victor Moses on loan from Chelsea, which I thought was probably a pretty good deal for them. Um, they also got uh, Jelovic from us for about three million pounds, uh, and they also got. Um, Oh, what's his name? Uh, Mikhail Antonio from Nottingham Forest. So, I mean, those were the three big deals that they managed to get over the line, uh, which were probably pretty impressive for them on the whole. Um, but <laughs> almost their best success, I think, was avoiding bringing in um, Adebayor from Tottenham, <laughs> who, who they were after until the very, very last minute. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, the most important sign they've made is Dimitri Payet. He looks like he should be playing. He kind of looks like when when Tobai turned up in the Premier League. And thinking, what's this boy playing at Newcastle? That's what I'm thinking about Dimitri Payet. He's a very creative player, controlling games for them. You're thinking, there's fat chance he's playing the next year. Yeah, I mean, because if he someone, continues someone's going to form, gonna come in for him. Yeah, if he continues the form he started the season with, you'd expect someone, one of the bigger clubs, to come in for him. You'd probably say the same thing about Andre. Um, are you from Swansea? Yeah. So there's no chance of him being there next year to do the player. But they won't be able to, I, I highly doubt they'll be able to keep him. But um, yeah, it's amazing with all the money now in the Premier League, and it's only going to keep keep increasing. These what you traditionally class as middle tier teams, they've got depth and they've got quality depth, really quality depth. But you know, that depth would probably make up. A, a mid-tier Premier League team on its own five, yeah. ten years ago. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just incredible. I think I saw an article in the lead-up to deadline day discussing just the fact that the bargaining power of these mid-tier English clubs has just skyrocketed with these TV deals and the, the calibre of the players that they're able to bring in um, and sort of offset that lack of Champions League or European competition with excess wages um, compared to what the European clubs are able to offer them. Uh, and it makes it quite tough for those European clubs to really compete for that kind of crop of players. Well, that's right. I mean, that's the reason why um, Bielsa walked out of Marseille is because they basically half his team got poached by Premier League clubs, and they didn't. <laughs> and they, but yeah, but it's just like, well, it's a, if if our club, being Marseille, is not showing enough ambition to try and, or we can't afford to, you know, what's the point? Um, but it was interesting. What the, one of the most interesting things about Deadline Day I found was Charlie Austin not leaving QPR, yeah. and he's he's got one year left. There's no way he's resigning. I'm not sure. It's kind of refreshing that he didn't kick up a bit of a stink. But if he's playing Premier League, he's in the England squad. I mean, if he's not the, playing Premier League. He won't be. That's well. I wanted to touch on that when you uh, mentioned Austin earlier as not really competing with Rooney for a starting spot. I mean, we know what Austin can produce in the Premier League. Does the fact that he's still at QPR really harm his chances that much? What what is the reason purely because he's not playing against that caliber opponent week in week out? I mean, it's not as if his personal skill has dropped off. Well, it's 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 like when you see these, say a Gareth Barry go from Aston Villa 
So he's Manchester City, and suddenly he's in the England squad and he's starting games. Same thing with James yeah. Milner. You I don't know, know if that's necessarily the way to go, though. I don't know if that's. I'm not saying that that's the way to go, but that's okay. that's the way it, it, it happens. So Charlie Austin being in the Championship, it will just be completely ruled out. I'd imagine he might he might be a part of a few squads if if he's lucky. I'm a little bit kind of disappointed. I mean, we've touched on it today on on the uh, on the board about James Wilson going out on loan. A good scenario for United would have been to send James Wilson out on loan. You know, he's going to he's going to Derby, probably go to the Premier League the season after that, and we could have paid the twelve to fifteen million the GPR after and get a quality backup in. Yeah, but, I, don't, um, I really don't understand why there wasn't more solid interest in Austin. To be honest, I mean there was well, small the, stories here and there, but but nothing too concrete. Everyone knew the price. Yeah, exactly. I guess everyone thought there was there's only one year to wait for him. And then he was, and it was free, but um, kind of like the whole De Gea uh, scenario. Yeah, but I mean, it's kind of interesting when you've got Arsenal, Spurs, and yourselves really sort of on the market for a striker, and Spurs are throwing twenty-two or twenty-four million pounds at West Brom for Berahino. I mean, I wouldn't say that there is that much difference in caliber between Berahino and Austin. Different players, but they're both at similar levels. You know, one small and quick, one debatably is a target man. Both good in the box, um, but the Berahino one was was funny. Uh, Daniel <laughs> Levy certainly not making himself well, himself any, any friends. I mean, the fact that I'm mean, more inclined to believe what Jeremy Peace is saying than what Daniel Levy's saying. But Jeremy Peace come out and said they've only offered us five million up front as their best bid. The rest is all in instalments and add-ons. It's like, come on, mate. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean that was seriously, the... if you're trying to buy a club's prized asset. What a like a twenty-one-year-old, you know, future England international, um, and you're offering five nil up front. I mean, get real. That, that was the other interesting story out of the day was um, Berahino's tweet, and I think he's been pretty roundly criticised, and I, I would say rightly so because if he has those sorts of issues with the club, I think he's best off dealing with it behind closed doors, not advertising it to the world on Twitter when there's that much media scrutiny on you at that point in time. Or maybe contrast the way that Charlie Austin went about it by basically saying nothing. Yeah. And the way Berahino went about it. I mean, the sense from Berahino's outburst is almost that he had an agreement in place where he would be able to go to Spurs. And and the fact that that didn't occur has meant that he's kicked up a fuss. But um, if you're right that they've only offered $5 million up front, then that's really more a failing on the Spurs end than on anything that West Brom's done wrong. Correct. Correct, and it's not the first time that this has happened with um, Levy either. He does love to pinch pennies um, on clubs, change deals at the last minute, that that kind of, that kind of stuff. And some blokes, some clubs just won't stand for it. I mean, there probably there are agreements w- with players, kind of like how Pedro had a hundred and fifty million pound release clause or million euro release clause, but they had a gentleman's agreement at thirty million euros. Yeah, you know, that he could go at that price. You know, but if you're if you're in Spurs scenario, you know just just pay it, pay what is worth, or pay it. You know, at least meet them halfway. Don't just try and lowball them because you know that there's this this side deal. You know, it's kind of like I heard. Um, I think it was uh, Philippe Oclair talking about Wenger and that bid for Suarez yeah. um, a couple of years ago, and you know his idea of value in the transfer market and that forty million and one pound. 
then they, and then they rejected it. And it was in his view that, no, that's all Suarez's worth. I won't go above what the player's worth. Come on. Um, speak, and then moving on to probably the other big deal from the transfer window that we haven't had a chance to uh, touch on yet was De Bruyne's move that finally went through to Manchester City. Um, what what do you see him adding to that side that can... I mean, they're already looking pretty solid chances of the title to begin with uh, without him even setting foot on the pitch. That City team is the kind of team that I end up after about the third season of playing FIFA. <laughs> um, it's just like... I mean, the amount of the amount of ability they have in that team is quite quite exceptional. They still have holes defensively, but um, it's a bit of a strange one. I mean, there's no doubt that he last year he was brilliant. It was sensational to watch. Everything at City at the moment goes through Yaya and Silva. De Bruyne needs to be fed the ball. So when he's playing for Belgium, when he played at Wolfsburg last year, everything went through him. Everything. I'm not talking about everything. People will get the ball, look up, where's the blind? Yeah. And then play it to him and he'd create. And look, his creativity is amazing. How does he adapt to not being peripheral, but not being the centre of attention? And that's not from an ego perspective, but not, not getting the touches that, that he's used to. That'll be interesting to see how he, he adapts. Um, but there's no doubt the abilities, the abilities there. Can they cope with all those attacking players? The Bruyne's not going to track back. I'll tell you right now, not that Pellegrini's ever really cared about players tracking back, so there might be a little more strain on them defensively. But then, I mean, they bring in Otamendi. He could prove to be their best signing of the summer because, I mean, he should play. He's, he's, he's better than Mandela, without a shadow of a doubt. But for a team like City, with the team they already had, I'd argue that coaching was a problem last year more than anything else, or maybe the attitude of the players as well being, being a problem. But to bring in that kind of backup at centre-half is quite exceptional, um, in addition to Sterling and De Bruyne. Um, yeah, because, I mean, as you mentioned, um, they have holes in their defence, so it'll be interesting to see how Otamendi goes, sort of sewing that together. I mean, their full-backs at the moment are looking a bit thin with, um, I think, um, a couple of injuries to... Uh, and Sanya was injured in a European qualifier on Monday, I think it was. And also Zabaleta's out, I think. Yeah, they'll be thin and they loaned out um, Denayer. I think he might have gone to Marseille, actually. Um, so I'm not I mean, I'm just presuming that they've got some kids that they can um, put in that role or recall someone from loan. Um, but yeah, they do look thin, and they don't have, you know, they've got. I mean, these guys are good players, you know, Clichy and Sanya, and especially Zabaleta. Maybe not now, but certainly was. Um, but they're not at the caliber of a lot of their other players. So, but I'm sure in future windows they'll look to, um, I guess, improve the squad in those positions. All right. So taking bias out of it, who do you reckon has won the transfer window? Who has had the most successful transfer window? Man City, quite, quite, quite comfortably, I think. Um, well, you know, well, actually, that, that's probably, probably not, not fair. Man City, out, out of the big, big four clubs, debatably big six clubs, have had the best window. I mean, it's, it's hard. 
it's kind of staggering to think that at the start of the window, when there was the names like De Bruyne and Sterling thrown around, and we thought, yeah, they might get one of those at, at a stretch, but they've managed to capture both of those, and they've added Otamendi as well, and um, Delph in midfield, if he can ever get fit. Um, Chisler rates him, rates him pretty highly, but uh, I'm a little bit kind of sceptical. He's, he's, you know, prime is probably... Gareth Barry, in my, in my, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, we shouldn't discount teams like Swansea and Leicester from this conversation. They're never going to have the... Well, sorry. Currently, they don't have the ability to go out and get the calibre of players that City have. But the players they've brought in have done exceptionally well. So we shouldn't just discount them for that reason. Yeah. And, and they're certainly up there. And you could add... And Palace and West Ham as well to the same oh. discussion. I mean, they've... they've... Like we, like we were saying before, the amount of talent those those mid-table sides are able to bring in now really um, helps them push on. And, and the, give, the depth that they give them is probably the most important factor because, I mean, if we look at Southampton and West Ham last season, they, they pushed up early uh, and challenged for those sort of top four places but really fell away because of depth and, and fatigue, I suppose, to their key players. So sides like Swansea, Palace... Leicester even, yeah, like you're saying, I mean, the depth that they've now got really really makes the season quite interesting to see how um, how the table will unfold. Absolutely. Um, how many strikers do Palace need? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, jeez. I, mean... <laughs> I tell you what, I, I, watched, I watched their last game. Uh, Yannick Balassi's gone to another level, I think. He's, just, he's so fun to watch. One on one takes blokes on direct, you know, shoots a lot, and yeah, it's, it's an extremely exciting player to watch. And even Saka, who they've brought in from um, Wolves, I think, on a free transfer, has looked pretty promising. I mean, he's, I think he scored the winner against Chelsea uh, and scored yeah. another goal um, as well. So he started his career with Palace very well. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that. They've got the strikers, and they've also got a lot of attacking midfielders as well. But, I mean, their defence still has that pureless sort of touch to it um, from when he was there. With, I mean, they, they don't concede that many goals, so looking a very well-rounded side at the moment. Absolutely, they're, they're playing. Yeah, they, well, they certainly played a lot, a lot better in terms of the brand of football last week, well, against Chelsea than, than Chelsea did against them. Chelsea were just hooping it up, uh, whereas whereas Palace actually brought the ball to ground, counter-attack, breaking from midfield, ball's always on the floor, beautiful to watch. Yeah, well, on that topic, we might as well uh, go on with the rest of the reviews from the last round of fixtures. Um, so it was a pretty big shock to see Chelsea losing to Palace. Um, it was only Mourinho's second home loss in charge, so... Um, it doesn't leave Chelsea in too good a position at this stage of the season. The, the international break helps no club more than it helps them. They are, they were so, they are so flat. It's not funny. There's no spark. I mean, Hazard, Hazard's been poor. Well, he's not creating anything at all. Um, they were trying to pass it to him and expect him to pull off um, miracles. Pedro's been their best player since he's come in. Costa's not doing much. He looks either half fit or disinterested. Uh, I think it's... As amazing as, this, as, as it is to say, I think teams have worked out Fabregas. I think teams have worked out that if you don't give him time on the ball, he kind of crumbles a bit. He's a little bit soft under pressure. 
and he, he he can't run both ways because he's just too slow. Um, Maddich has had a, a quiet start to the year. Obviously, they they missed um, Terry through suspension recently. Ivanovic doesn't get out to to the to the wings to um, defend his position quickly enough. I don't understand and how it, Ivanovic yeah. is still on the side. He's got to be he's got to be dropped this week, surely. Well, I've, I've probably been leading that bandwagon for quite some time, <laughs> to be honest. But um, what's interesting is who does Mourinho needs to freshen up this side. Now he brought on Kennedy, who replaced, well, he basically played like a left back, left wing back role, and he actually took players on and beat players. I mean, it takes a while for to, people to get used to, you know, a, I guess a left wing back taking Brazilian taking people on the front and centre, but he he added spark and drive going forward. Loftus cheek the same. He's got a plot. I mean, if, if if Fabregas isn't isn't the Fabregas of early last season, don't forget he was he was no good in the second half or the late half for like the late quarter last he quarter did, last he season. He tends either. to do that. I think was it Barcelona when he transferred to Chelsea released a, a set of stats about his seasons and he always starts seasons quite well, but then fades in the second half of the season for one reason or another. Um, so, I mean, in one sense, it wasn't a surprise the way he played the second half of last season, but it's surprising that he started this season so slowly. Well, exactly right. And to be honest, like, I don't think Chelsea, if they've got ambitions of winning the title, it's very early, I don't, but I don't think that they can just wait. I think they need to be proactive, get some of get that um, Kennedy playing from the start, I think from the start, taking on defenders. Loftus Cheek has to play instead of Fabregas, in my, in my opinion. Um, and where the hell is is Floyd Remy? What does that bloke <laughs> have to do? I take him at Old Trafford right now. I mean, seriously, he's a, he's a quality, quick forward. Falcao was brought in as a third striker, but he somehow jumped over it in the pecking order. I mean, this is. I mean, I I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not saying I agree fully with the argument, but um, you know, the post on the board by or a thread by. Show you pups talking about kind of warehousing strikers that or players that other teams are interested in in terms of preventing them um, progressing. I mean, the lower Remy scenario kind of feeds into that a little bit. How you know Liverpool Spurs <laughs> they'd love a player like him right now. Yeah. Right now, Arsenal would love a player like him right now. Um, you look at so, the and he's sitting guy. there. You look at guys like Salah and and Quadrado and stuff who were brought in and then basically sold off very quickly afterwards without much of a much of a look in really. Oh, that's right. I mean, imagine what the narrative would be if that was United doing that. Yeah. Ruining football. <laughs> <laughs> or or uh, Manchester City, but um, the Salah one was yeah was was quite interesting. I didn't really see him outside of preseason. I mean, if you go if you go off preseason form, United's been the best team in the world the last two years. You know, you don't go off preseason form. They're saying, oh, this, you know, Salah started slow in preseason, Pedrado too. Well, you know, that that doesn't matter. That's that's really irrelevant. It's about getting game time into the players, and really nothing more than that. You shouldn't read into those results. It's kind of like when Carlton won the NAB Cup and the Spoon in the same season. You don't read into preseason <laughs> yeah. too much. Um. Mm. The other interesting aspect from the, the set of games on the weekend was the amount of red cards that we saw. I think Newcastle had one, um, Liverpool and West Ham both had one, Stoke had two, um, and I think was it Norwich had one as well. So it was, it was a very card-happy weekend um, all around from the referees. 
Um, but I, it's been a while since we've seen a team go down to nine men, I think. And of, course it, of course it was going to be Stoke. Of course, of course, just to feed the narrative. <laughs> yeah, um, Charlie so as well. Oh, yeah, well, no, I've, I've made my thoughts pretty clear on Charlie Adam last season. <laughs> he's not in my... Uh, yeah, I don't like him too much because of the way he plays and he tries to, tries to main other players. Um, but I didn't actually see the Stoke match, but I did watch the Arsenal-Newcastle um, game and that red card to Mitrovic, I thought that was extremely harsh. I think that um, referees have kind of heard about, a bit about his past. And he's been, yeah, he's been getting a lot of cards to start his career with Newcastle. I also think that um, opposition players know that too. Yeah. So, uh, Cotola for Arsenal, I mean, is he the reincarnation of Perez? He is <laughs> diving more than any other player in the comp at the moment. Yeah. So he gets the slightest touch and he's, he's doing the old kind of jump up in the air. Yeah, with, yeah. Off both, off both legs, like, almost like he's trying to do um, like high jump or something. <laughs> the, the, the irony is, when he's on the other side, he goes in as hard as anyone with his tackles, and was, was lucky not to get sent off against Palace. Correct, correct. So I thought that I mean, there's no doubt Mitrovic missed time, missed time that tackle, but that's all it was. It was clumsy. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't trying to break the bloke's leg. It was just clumsy, and there were, you know, equivalent challenges throughout that game. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think that's indicative, though, of the, I guess, a change of refereeing in the comp. I think that players and the refs know this bloke is a history, and they're going to try and exploit it. Um, one of the big results of the weekend was West Ham's 3-0 win over Liverpool. I think it was their first win at Anfield since the 60s or something like that. Um, so, big result for them, and kind of continues Liverpool's um, stop-start to the season, um, in a way. They, they've, they haven't looked too convincing, really, in their opening fixtures. Well, I'm, I mean, anyone listening to this, I hope you are not using my opinions to gamble with, because <laughs> just to let you know, I said that Ranieri, the Tinker Man, was going to be no good, and he'll get sacked pretty early. <laughs> I said that uh, Slavon Pilic doesn't know what he's doing. He's erratic from week to week. Um, so, yeah, don't read too much into what I'm saying regarding um, previews of games. But um, they just played them off the pitch. It was quite, it was quite bizarre. They, looked, they controlled the game, West Ham. was were very level-headed. The Mark Noble red card was ridiculous. Absolutely um, ridiculous. I'd say that the 2-10-0-1 was, was harsh too. But West Ham fully deserved that win. And without... Wanting to put the boot in too much. I did find it interesting that um, Anfield was basically half empty after about 50 minutes of the game. So maybe there's some, some pressure will come on from the supporters onto Brendan Rodgers and there have been a couple of people. I mean, Faith loves talking about Van Hal more than her own team. <laughs> but um, she, she said that, you know, this weekend's game, the bloke that loses, the manager that loses, will come under increasing pressure, and that's probably fair. Um, although for all people batting out United, they are fit. Yeah, I mean at least they're sort of um, challenge pushing for that top four. But I mean, you are on you are level on points with Liverpool. To be fair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's not as if Liverpool's had that poor a start to the season, I suppose, compared to United, uh, who well, also, also lost this weekend to Swansea. Well, last weekend to Swansea. We haven't had, a, but we don't have the advantage of. Um, 
the refs every week. So <laughs> I like them where basically all their points have come from offside goals. Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm uh, yeah upset about that at all. But yeah, Swansea. Uh, we, well, as we spoke about it last week, um, they they have the water they have the water over us, and it's always two one. I can't quite quite fathom it. To be honest, we need to, United need to be more more clinical with that possession. It's all right having all that possession and perceived control of the game, but you know you need to put the ball in it. And turn dominance into in, into three points. Last season, United dominated whenever they played um, the, the other kind of top four teams, including Chelsea, that got that jammy one 0 win. But they struggled to put away the lower half teams. who just trying to park the bus. They let United have the ball. I mean, They're I, I, I passed it around. So we need to convert them into chances. Yeah, I mean, I watched this game as well, and and. You're right. I mean, for the the whole first half, basically, I think United were quite were very very much on top, um, but just couldn't really convert their chances. But I think it was Swansea's change of formation. I think they threw Ayu up front with um, Gomez, and and that pair just looks so prolific at the moment. I think they've both got four goals or three goals each or something. Um, so they've started the season very well. But um, Gary Monk um, has just started the season so well for Swansea and. To have three wins in three against um, United in his managerial career is... I mean, most managers would be pretty envious of that record, I think. Well, there's already talk that when Roy Hodgson stuffs up at the next uh, major tournament, that they'll give him the boot and offer the job to Monk. Uh, I think... I remember last pre-season we were all pretty... Um, uh, I wouldn't say critical, but apprehensive, I suppose, about the direction Swansea was heading in with Monk in charge because this sort of player-manager turning into the manager doesn't usually work out for sides, but he's just gone from strength to strength at that club, and it's it's a real testament to, to how strong that club is and its foundations and its um, theories and strategies about football. Absolutely, and they're a good team to watch. I mean, yeah, I'm really enjoying watching Andre a year. So they've got... They've, Pinched, didn't they pinch uh, Jack Cork from Southampton as well? Uh, He's a very good player to watch. I'm not, I'm not uh, convinced by Shelby just yet. The England squad, although he's a little bit all over the place uh, at, the, at the moment, plenty of blokes been given chances, which is good, but not many blokes get given these kind of chances in uh, Euro qualifiers. But um, yeah, they've certainly got the makeup of a, a, good, a good young, exciting team. That's good. Um, and so what was your main takeaway from that set of games, I guess? If we're going to continue with this theme of, you know, what did you learn from that set of fixtures? What was your main um, takeaway? My main takeaway is, well, outside of United being needing to be more more clinical, which but that's something that I've known for the last 18 months, I guess my main takeaway is that it's very difficult to predict in this league due to, due to the, the strength of the middle tier and even the lower tier clubs and all the players they brought in. There, there, are, no, there are literally no easy games in, in this comp anymore. They're not. Every, every game is difficult. We saw Bournemouth roll, West Ham, who then roll um, Liverpool with Anfield. There are no easy games. Uh, the league is fantastic to watch. And, um, yeah, looking forward to this weekend. I guess my main takeaway would be um, that I completely agree with that point as well. And, and my other point would probably be that 
Man City are basically champions elect at this stage. I mean, they've beaten Chelsea with a clean sheet. They haven't considered a goal yet in their first four games. Uh, and they've added talent to, on, on top of that in De Bruyne and Otamendi. And Sterling has found the back of the net against Watford. So they're really looking the complete package. And I think all that could let them down is, as you say, management. Um, so it remains to be seen if Pellegrini can can coach them over the line, but um, they're certainly looking head and shoulders above the rest of the competition at this stage. Um, I think they've got Crystal Palace this week, so that's probably where our two um, talking points will collide, and we'll see if Palace, mm -hmm. as, a, as a mid-table club, can really challenge them. Um, ironically, Palace are actually coming second at the moment, but... Um, It'll certainly be interesting to see just how strong City is compared to the rest of the competition. Top of the table clash. Yeah, absolutely. Top two clash. <laughs> um, so that'll certainly be an interesting one. Um, speaking of top table top of the table clashes, we might segue there into a brief chat about the championship, um, where where my mob uh, facing a top of the table clash with Brighton this weekend, um, happily sitting in second place after the international break. So, um, it's been a pretty good start to the season for Hull, I must say. Um, probably our best business in the transfer window was actually keeping most of the squad together. We've, we've kept Diami, who was, I was, to be honest, a bit surprised to see stay. Um, he came out during the week and basically said he can't promise that he'll stay, but if he stays, he'll give his, give his all for the club, give 100%, because we supported him through his injuries. Um, and he's, he's a cracking player when he's on form. I mean... He started the season for us last year with goals against Arsenal and West Ham and um, really looked the complete midfielder for us and in a lot of ways reminded me of Yaya Toure in just his sort of um, strength and, and, sh and shot power and, and you know skill on the ball. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, so... Obviously not saying he's the same calibre as Toure, just that, <laughs> that style of player. Um so he was almost our most important player that we needed to keep over the um, deadline day madness. But, um, yeah, sitting in second place now, hopefully we can kick on. So um, how has your defence coped uh, with losing, well, I guess, James Chester and Paul McShane? And who's storing the goals for you? Um, well, we've got Dawson and Davies back in defence now. And, and Dawson was the other one I think most... Hull fans were pretty worried about losing over the um, end of the transfer window. I think Sunderland were looking at bringing in another defender and, and there was a bit of worry that he might be heading there. But Dawson and Davies have looked really good together at, at the back and we've moved to a 4-4-2 formation. So um, having that third centre-back isn't as much of an issue anymore. Though, as you'll know, I'm, I'm quite a big James Chester fan, so <laughs> losing him was pretty heartbreaking. Um the other end of the pitch is a slight concern because we, we seem to have this habit that strikers will come into the club and they'll score on debut like um, Akpom did on his debut, but they don't really score keep scoring after that. So um, we've been a bit lucky so far. We've had a penalty to help us get a point against Wolves that should have probably been three points. Um, and we've beaten up on a couple of the mid to lower championship clubs in Huddersfield and Preston and that sort of thing. Um, but this this clash against Brighton, we've we've got a tough month coming up. We've got Brighton, QPR, and Cardiff as our three big clashes. But uh, if we can probably get six or seven points out of those, I think that would really sort of set us on our way to 
challenging at the top of the table. I don't follow the championship too closely, but how's um, Bobby Zamora going at Brighton? <laughs> I think he's actually been injured. I don't know if he's started uh, too many games for them. Um, they've got Lua Lua, who's scoring a lot of goals for them at the moment, and he looks just... a real decent striker for them. And um, I know there was sort of talk that Ujoa might be rejoining them from Leicester uh, just on loan, because Leicester originally bought him from um, Brighton. So... Mm. With the loan window uh, reopened now, it'll be interesting to see if he heads back there because Ujoa and Lua Lua up front would be quite a potent strike force for them. So, why didn't James Wilson end up at Hull? Is it because you, you didn't want to play... Hull didn't want to play two uh, young strikers yeah, together? I mean, Is there too much competition? or what? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've had an interest in him all, all summer, really, because we've been perennially linked to him um, over the course of the summer um, and Akpom was kind of a left field signing so and I felt at the time that that might have ruled James Wilson out a little bit because as you say um, United would want to be sending him to a club where he'd be starting most weeks and Arsenal would be wanting the same with Akpom and for us challenging at the top of the championship you wouldn't really want to be resting all your hopes on two pretty young strikers who are out on loan um, We've got we've brought in Adama Diomande from Norway, who had a scoring record of I think 17 goals in 21 games for this season, because nice. I think the Norwegian season starts in January, um, so they're already about halfway through. Um, so he looks a decent signing for us. I mean, he was only I think almost two million pounds. So uh, if he doesn't amount to much, it's not too much of a loss. But uh, we've managed to keep hold of Hernandez as well, who was linked to Italian clubs all through the summer, but uh, has actually ended up staying. So um, it's going to be interesting. I mean, Akpom, Hernandez, and, and Diomande are probably our, our three strikers with Aluko as backup. Um, but, yeah, I just don't think there was room for Wilson. Fair enough. Um, have you got an idea at this early station of the season who are going to be the main contenders for the championship? Um I think Brighton have surprised people a little bit because of where they finished last season, but um, and certainly for them, their next few games, as with us, uh, will probably set the tone for their season. So um, they're probably one of the early front runners that might be worth keeping an eye on. But apart from them and us sitting in first and second, um, QPR have certainly rebounded quite well. They they lost on the first day of the season, uh, which might have sort of set them back and and had the negative doubts sort of circling in their minds, but they've done quite well on the back of Charlie Austin scoring a few goals for them. Um, so if he can keep up his form from last season uh, and scoring goals for them, they'll certainly be a threat. Um, probably the other one is Wolves. I think I, list, I mentioned them in one of the pre-season podcasts as an outsider for um, promotion. And with Benfic Afobi, who they brought in from Arsenal, last season I think um, he's been scoring quite a few goals for them as well so um, any of those four are probably the main contenders and then you've got um, other sides like Ipswich and, and Derby if they can get it together now with um, Wilson coming in but Derby Derby are an interesting one I mean I've mentioned on the board a little bit the dangers that they're sort of gambling on that the amount that they've spent I think they've spent about 23 or 24 million pounds over the summer without selling any players. So um, if they don't get promoted, they they might be in a bit of trouble with financial fair play. But 
Um, I guess this, if, if you're ever going to do it, this is the season to put all your eggs in one basket, I suppose. Well, it's a real shame for them that they won't have Will Hughes. He's a really exciting yeah. talent. He, I think he, he blew out his knee on the first day of the season, so uh, he's a massive blow for them, um, which is why I was a bit surprised they brought in Wilson as a priority um, when they've already got Bent and Martin and uh, Vyman as strikers and Ince as well can play up there. When I would have thought that replacing that creative midfielder would be a higher priority for them, but um, we'll see how they go, I suppose. They've, they've started the season with four draws, so um, they'd want to get a move on and pick up a few points before too long because Brighton are already on 13 and we're on 10. So, um, And obviously one of those sides will probably pull away a bit further this weekend. So um, they'd want to be picking up a few more points soon and, and getting up towards that top end of the table. It's a long season. It is. It's 46 games. It's a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> um, so we'll see how it goes. It's It's hard kind of getting used to the um, run of games that we get with the championship compared to the Premier League because uh, whenever there's a European game day for Premier League clubs that means that there's championship action going on so um, it's been pretty a pretty intense start to the season we've also had League Cup games so it'll be good to see how the side settles over the next few months and whether we can really push for that promotion spot and hopefully get straight back up to the Premier League Absolutely uh, anyway, we, we might draw to a close there. So thanks very much for coming on, Bojan. No worries, Matt. Thank you. Thanks to everyone for listening in. Um, until next... Well, actually, we might do... A, we'll do a podcast on uh, probably Saturday morning to preview the game. So um, until then, we'll see you on the forums. <laughs>